0: At a certain point, you realize you can't shoot everything, but you want to shoot something that's meaningful to you and you want to shoot it in your way. And in figuring that out, you discover a lot about yourself and uh, you make something that's authentic, not necessarily original or novel, new or different, different.
1: This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today, folks, today we are talking with John Paul Caponegro. John Paul is a tremendous landscape photographer, but saying that is just hitting the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. His work is all over the place. It has been collected by the Estee Lauder Collection, Princeton University, the Smithsonian. This guy's in the, he's a member of the Photoshop Hall of Fame. He's in the new volume of Frames Magazine, which with any luck you're holding in your hand as you're listening to this. His act of taking photography has been all over the planet, from Antarctica to the desert, to you name it. And John Paul's approach to photography is one that I am becoming increasingly fascinated by. It's it's not a matter of a technical capture. It's not a matter of photorealism. These are emotional pieces. These are mindful pieces. This is photography that goes straight to the heart and soul. John Paul, welcome to the Frames Podcast. How are
0: you doing today? I'm good. Thank you so much, Scott.
1: (laughs) This is going to be exciting. I have become a real, real fan of your work. But before we get into the work itself, I, mean, I really do love sort of origin stories. I love how people got into photography. And I'm reading on your website, and everybody, it's johnpaulcapanegro.art, not .com, .art. You got to go there. You managed to get your family out of an apartment when you were two years old because of your artistic endeavors. What was going on there?
0: Almost. We, we got to stay, <laughs> but my parents had to do a little training first. I was two. My father had gotten a Guggenheim grant, and he decided used to go photograph the megalithic monuments of the British Isles. That's when that project started, and it became probably his best-known book. Uh And those were some of my first memories: getting on the ferry, going across, getting into the apartment, and um, I took up mural making. I uh, took my crayons to the walls, (laughs) (laughs) and (laughs) luckily, I'm, I'm in this family of artists they got blocks of paper and put them in every room said here kid on the paper not on the walls so they paper trained me and (laughs) the landlord said i could stay
1: (laughs) (laughs) but i mean er early on landscape was an interest of yours was it because of the work your father was doing or was there something i mean now that you're looking back was there something else going on
0: um it's kind of hard to sort sort that out Uh, we always lived in natural places I spent all the time that I wasn't drawing, uh, maybe some reading, uh, splashing around in the lake or the river in Connecticut or banging around on the foothills of the uh, Sangre de Cristos in in New Mexico. I wanted to be outside. Of course, being around dad, who is another nature lover and who photographs and continually celebrates it, helped a great deal. And Mm -hmm. my mother also was very much interested in the natural world. It wasn't just her garden. I think she's the reason we had a menagerie. I think by the time we left Connecticut to go to New Mexico, we had 20 cats, 10 oh in and 10 out. That didn't speak to the dozen rabbits. Later, I think we counted in New Mexico that we had over 100 life forms we were supporting, which included my fish tanks at this point. <laughs> I had a near miss with marine biology. So, you know, her love of animals, my dad's love of quiet moments in nature uh, and just being in nature all the time.
1: And, and your mom was also into graphic design and you wound up uh, through the both of them meeting Ansel Adams and Georgia O'Keeffe. And, and you say on your website here, you got in, in a little bit of trouble one day for rooting around an Ansel Adams camera bag.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> of course, I wasn't throwing things left and right. I was, you know, okay. being sheepish and delicate about it, but I was definitely lifting the lid and looking in there because my parents had been teasing Ansel that he had a cloud stick. You know, Ansel's pictures always have these fabulous clouds in them. And mm-hmm. the minute I heard cloud stick, I wanted to see the cloud stick and I wanted one. <laughs> I didn't get my <laughs> cloud stick until uh, 1990 with Photoshop.
1: Well, yeah. And man, you have embraced the the technical side of post-production and, and we're going to talk about printing in a little bit. We're going to talk about Photoshop and all that. But uh, I mean, you're putting together a natural landscape and you're doing a lot of photorealist work, but you're bringing an extra element to it. And you you say on your website that your life's work is dedicated to inspiring conscientious, creative interaction with our environment. Okay. What is conscientious, creative interaction?
0: It's engaging the natural world in Mm -hmm. a creative way. I think when you have any creative discipline and you do engage the world with it, you you realize how deeply uh, a part of it you are and it is of you. And so I think we come to a much greater appreciation of I keep looking for the right word. It's actually something I've been kind of taking on in some of my writing, particularly poetry. We don't really have a word for we that encompasses the natural world, and we need to get out of this notion of us and it, because mm-hmm. this giant we, and, and that different sense of mind, different sense of heart that comes from feeling so deeply connected, I, I think is one of the things that will lead to, A, a lot of creative solutions to the problems that we face today, and B, a tremendous sense of um, satisfaction and fulfillment from that deep connection, which uh, often we're, we're missing.
1: Well, I mean, tell me more about this deep connection, because a lot of people simply receive nature. They look out, oh, it's a pretty sunset. You know, and, and the notion of giving back, the notion of it being uh, an engagement uh, is sometimes missing. In your website, you have a number of YouTube videos, one of which is really, uh, I think, you know, profound, uh, called Sublime Mom- Moments. Tell me about th- that kind of give and take. Tell me what you mean by the sublime moment.
0: I usually measure the depth of an experience by breath. And I've seen this a lot in performances or in galleries and museums when there's great art. And I see this a lot with my students who are out with me in a lot of these wonderful locations across the world. Their breathing changes. And so when my breathing changes, I start to pay attention. And so there have been several moments that I talk about in this video, Sublime Moments, where... I encountered a quality of breath I rarely felt before. It might have been sailing like a bird in a, in a helicopter 3,000 feet over these 1,500-foot-high coral-colored dunes in Namibia over Sossusvlei, With rays of light coming through this dusty atmosphere, it, it, it was a divine experience. You didn't want it to end. Time moves at a different pace when things like this are happening. It's a similar experience I've been chasing this waterfall. Most people who go to Iceland, Cellulens Foss is on the destination. It's the one you're going to walk behind. Right. And at sunset, if you're lucky that the sky is clear enough on the horizon, this thing will catch fire. So I've been there four, five, six different times. I wanted to see this. And I knew that the weather conditions were pretty good this one day, a couple of days before the workshop started. And I just drove myself out there and got lucky. The, the thing just went through this wonderful cycle of colors from creams into pinks into lavenders into grays into black. I stood there for the better part of three hours in stunned silence, just breathing with the waterfall as it continued to change. It was like eating color and you could feel the waterfall vibrating your whole body. Uh, So Mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing I'm talking about when we get into these extraordinary situations and you just feel lucky to be a part of it all.
1: But you have the ability to take that three hours and condense it down to, you know, one two hundred and fiftieth of a second um mm-hmm. and, and and give it back to me. So yeah, we well, well,
0: only show you one percent of what I shot.
1: <laughs> but I mean, you, so but you got it. I mean, you know, it's, it's you know the, the hit and miss ratio for all of us is, is a closely kept, kept secret. Um,
0: <laughs> I but don't think it's a secret, and <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to emphasize the art of selection and editing more. I Man, so many times in the digital world, we think of editing as moving sliders with software. I, 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 I would rather call that processing. I'm, <laughs> I'm talking about old school editing and sequencing, which which is a profound part of of. Figuring out what you've done and finding ways to present that effectively to other people. It's really the thing that I emphasize in my field workshops because mm-hmm. these skills are are really needed. I had a, a fun conversation with Sarah Lean last fall for the Santa Fe workshops, and she's been a, an amazing picture editor for National Geographic and many others. Uh, and it was, it was so wonderful to h- hear someone speak my language here, which is a language I really learned from my mother.
1: Well, say more. How, how did your mother's graphic work influence you?
0: Right. So mom was more than a graphic designer. Originally, she was a painter, graduated top of her class in 63 from RISD. Okay. And then she moved into graphic design and started doing books for artists. It was um, fascinating to see her shepherd creation of many of these seminal projects Uh, i remember elliot porter sometimes would call her say Eleanor, come quick i've got a new book and i don't know what to put in it he really trusted her eye to figure out what to select and then how to sequence it she was deeply involved in that editorial process but she also took these projects onto press she understood offset presses, and <laughs> some of the pressmen would accuse her of printmaking. <laughs> In other <laughs> words, the, you know, you'd know, you go through so many proofs that the book would look really gorgeous, and that's why so many artists wanted to work with her. So she was much more than a graph designer, and I learned a tremendous amount. Uh, just, just the idea that a guy like Elliot Porter could make the photographs, but he didn't know which ones to select or how to put them together, so it all made sense. Mm-hmm. It's a different set of skills, which... More and more these days, a single person needs to do that, and it can be very useful creatively for any artist, whether they're working professionally or purely for personal reasons. It, it's it's a vehicle for creative expression. These are really wonderful skills that I encourage everybody to learn.
1: Uh, well, absolutely, you know, from beginning to end, we talk about photography oftentimes just in terms of the tech of the camera itself, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to, you know, but I remember seeing, you know, for. Decades, although now decades ago, you know, those those big contact sheets with people circling certain images and arrows right. pointing and stuff, you know, th- th- that whole selection process that we do now at Lightspeed uh, with Lightroom or Photoshop. But the editor's eye is not uh, the artist's eye um, or, or I mean, they might be cousins, but they're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go back, though. Do, do you just shoot everything you possibly can when you're in the field and then trust your eye when you get back? Um, and you're selecting? Or how do you know when that sort of transformative moment is right for you to pick up the camera and shoot?
0: Uh, I don't shoot everything. If if mm-hmm. I did, I'd spend my entire life just looking at the stuff and not even get to the editing. I'd, I'd use a video camera and hope to find a frame, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's interesting. Your question leads to to like thinking about something else as well. You know, my friend Seth Resnick, who I go out and teach a lot of the workshops with internationally, just says, do you feel it? Okay, yeah. so there's this, this gut reaction. But I think we come to know our voice, our themes, our sensibility. And we know that we're in a territory that really interests us. There, it's one thing to understand the tropes and the genres and the compositional devices that are available to all of us. It's another to figure out which ones really appeal to you and which ones are going to help serve what you're trying to say with your images. Now, part of that is is interesting because we don't always know what we want to say until we start making some pictures and start to figure it out. One of the reasons why I encourage people to take on personal projects and, and think about a sequence, think about which ones are going to go in, what kinds of buckets, just the act of, is this a project about... Uh, I got some solitary trees, but it is about solitude or it is about loneliness. And it yeah. can be a real difference depending on how you, yeah. how you emphasize that. So I think it's a constant dialogue. And I find myself with this internal dialogue, I, I'm often of more than one mind, but also with my materials and more importantly with my subject. And if the landscape can't talk back to me, <laughs> or rather I need to listen a little differently, Mm-hmm. I can get that conversation going by asking a series of questions and part of it is just tuning in to the whole sensory organism that is my body this 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 beautiful instrument it's not just the eyes it's all of the senses it's it's also the gut so we we have many more senses uh, available to us and while it doesn't feel like the sound gets into your pictures sometimes you find that somebody comes up, looks at a picture and says, gosh, I can really feel how cold it was there. Or I get the smell of the brine of the ocean. Or all of these other senses start to bleed in there because the associations are so strong. I think we first have to have those really radiant experiences ourselves. So once again, back to breathing. When I start breathing a little differently, I say, wait a minute, something's happening here and start paying attention. But I'm actively engaged in getting that going. I ask a lot of questions. I take a ton of notes. I'm constantly looking and searching for patterns. And part of the pattern is, what's up with me? What am I doing? How am I responding to these things? Do I tend to do these things? Am I doing it because I've been taught that's the way photography should be practiced? Or am I doing it because I found a genuine way that is really serving the vision I have and what I want to say the kinds of things I want to develop.
1: This is fascinating stuff and you know what I'm thinking about in the back of my head here is how close what you're saying is to uh, some other art forms, especially improvisation and music, which yeah. you, you're playing the same thing, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night. But depending on your mood, that solo, that, li- you know, that improv is going to be very different That's because right. the, wor- the world is asking you different questions and you're asking different questions of the world. Um, so many
0: of the early photographers were also musicians. So when yeah. said the negative is a score and the print is the performance – they celebrated that more improvisational quality and the evolution of a vision. But so many times, whether it's Dad or Ansel or Don Worth or Huntington Witherell, so many folks, particularly West Coasters, but not exclusively, these photographers are also musicians and they have this other creative discipline that keeps them loose, keeps them thinking differently. It's fascinating even how the language bleeds over. They both it talk does. about tonal scales. <laughs>
1: That's very true. I had not thought of that before. That that that's absolutely true. Man, you do something here that I find. Really impressive, and, and I'm looking at your website, and you've got a page on here simply called "Studies." And studies—if you know you've studied, you know painting with charcoal, or you know the, the arts, um, you know painting, watercolor, whatever—studies are practice pieces. They're etudes. They're—you know—can I learn to draw a hand? You know, before I, I try to draw something bigger, and you're all over this notion of doing studies. And, and you begin by saying making images is a form of knowing. Tell me about the importance of studies in general, you know, in how you see photography, but also your own work. And what do you mean by making images as a form of knowing?
0: So you're talking to a painter. He uses a camera. And you know, I, I studied painting in, in college. And, of course, we, we talked earlier about my mural making efforts at the age <laughs> of two. Right?
1: No, wait, I, I do have to. Are those saved? Are they are they in a basement somewhere?
0: No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some of the, the drawing, some of the paper trainings might be still around a couple. Yeah, of that's what, okay. Yeah, my, my parents do have some of those things. I'm not to them. Of course, everything that was on the wall got scrubbed down. Yeah. <laughs> and then paper. Well, well the,
1: the, the paper's got to become the cover of your next book, but okay, never mind. Go on. Uh,
0: you know, I guess it's the print that persists, not the murals. <laughs> 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 um, so... You know, if you're if you're going to spend a lot of time on a single canvas, and, and that's one of the big differences between a photograph that can happen in a 200. I've not seen a painting happen in a 250th of a second. Many times, the things that really satisfied me took 10, 20, 30, 40 hours. So there's this right. accumulation of time, it's, and so you do uh, a lot of preparatory studies to figure out, oh, where do you want to put stuff? How do you want the color to to work out? On any number of things, you're you're making these preparatory images to figure out what you finally want to execute. But somewhere along the way, I also realized that the studies had their, their kind of own integrity, that they, they had a life all, all themselves. You know, when Albers did his color studies to find out about how color encoded space, distance, and created different optical effects, he's really tuning up his eyes. And having done that curriculum, I continued to do those studies myself just to keep myself sharp. I also know that you know when I sketch things out. <laughs> Arthur Myerson was was traveling with me in Antarctica one time. We're flying back on the airplane, and, and he's seeing me make these little sketches—just uh, simple line drawings. You know, not, nothing fancy. Mm-hmm. Moving an iceberg left and right, making it bigger and smaller, making two or three of them, just working out different compositions. I know that when I do those compositions. I sensitize myself to certain patterns that are more significant to me and I find new ideas as well. So I put myself on point and say, oh, that would be really neat. I remember drawing a picture of, a, of the mirrored reflection of a mountain in the water with icebergs coming across it. Well, Antarctica is the windiest continent, so I had to wait several trips to finally find that. And it, it didn't work out exactly as I'd drawn it, but I had this loose blueprint that helped me identify a pattern that was really important to me and that I wanted to get that. And so, you know, when we write something down, we're seventy-two percent more likely to act on it, seventy-three percent more likely to remember it. Uh, just remember, sixty-eight point three percent of statistics are made up, but not those, <laughs> <laughs> those come out of John Medina's brain. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, you know, so if we write something down, and we're more likely to remember and act on it, why why don't we use a note? And a note could also be a sketch. And a note could also be a photograph. I use my iPhone to make visual notes all the time. I'm not concerned Mm -hmm. about making a finished product, but I'm catching an idea that I might later follow up on. And then, of course, I get curious, endlessly curious. And I say, well, at what point does one of these studies, which has a lot of integrity on its own, you know, it's a nice photograph of a temple in Japan. You know, it's a nice set of things. It doesn't really go with the rest of what you're doing, but like, at what point does that study become a finished work? It gets really thin in a photograph. And I think we often talk about sketching or making practice shots, what we see in the contact sheet, and then finding that one decisive moment. Of course, all the others around it kind of prove that photography is the indecisive moment, right? Right. <laughs> Part of it is, is the decision that you're going to pursue something longer and go deeper with it, and you're going to support it with other images around it. You're going to create a larger project. I'm, I'm not a big believer in a collection of hero images. They're beautiful. They're beautifully crafted. But what is the ultimate message? And that's where I think these picture editors who put together these wonderful books or curate a wonderful exhibition start to help shape a larger statement. And it may not be a literal narrative. Sometimes it's a more poetic arc, but it's still got a gesture. There are still themes within it. There's more than just pretty pictures. So studies, I think there's a lot of different ways to do them. And I think we should be endlessly curious and try stuff to figure it out because that then helps us evolve our finished work. And it becomes complete. I don't like to say finished because it almost suggests it's over. Right, uh, It becomes full and rich and complete and achieves a certain kind of critical mass or depth. Then it's, then it's ready to release to the world as a, as a more mature statement.
1: Tell me about Antarctica. Why did you go there the first time and what called you back so many other times?
0: <laughs> Elliot Porter is what seeded it. I remember being a young man, probably early teens, when Elliot first got his National Science Foundation grant to go down there. Right. And my mom helped him put together the book. Uh, lots of stories there but just to see this septuagenarian octogenarian going down to the bottom of the world having these magnificent uh, adventures in that time average citizens you needed a grant like that to go there, there weren't these tour boats or anything like that i was enchanted by the photographs that he showed me by this world of ice by a pink iceberg that was full of krill another green iceberg that was full of algae by these he got a, a, a Drake Lake, which means you know the Drake Passage, roughest waters in the world, sometimes mm-hmm. are clear. And he got this beautiful sunset. I've not yet seen that. I would I would like to continue to see that. I would love to see that someday. I, I wanted to go, but I had no idea how long it would take, or when, or how. I think it was in two thousand five that Michael Reichman called me up and said, "Hey, I'm I'm taking four other photographers. You want to come teach with me? We're gonna we're gonna take us one boat." Seventy-five different photographers, all at the same time. We're going go <laughs> to go and take an article.
1: <laughs> did, did, did you bring seventy-five back?
0: <laughs> we did. <laughs> a couple of them had fallen down, but everybody was in one piece. We were good. <laughs> okay. We had lots of adventures. It was great. It was fantastic. It was a dream come true, literally. Um, and it, this is decades later. So Michael did three trips in a row, and then said, "I'm tired of seasickness." And I said. I'm addicted to this place. I love this place. I want to. I want to go back. I got to find another way to do this. And uh, so that's exactly what I did with Seth Resnick. We started Digital Photo Destinations, and we've been nine more times, and we're going on our thirteenth trip in 2023.
1: Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit ReadFrames.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. Oh, man. I, I am just as jealous as a human being can be. But you've done something really cool here. Most of the images in the magazine, of course, are photorealist, but you've got a lot of work about Antarctica um, that is you know, what you call like the Dreaming Series. You, you've gone a step beyond. Tell me, tell me what the Dreaming Series is about. Tell me how you're making Antarctica fresh and new for you and, and for us with every trip.
0: First, every time that I go to Antarctica, there's a different mood. Uh, I feel like some trips I've gotten a little bit of a lot of different moods, mm-hmm. but uh, it's so weather dependent. We've had uh, one trip where we had these riotous, multi-hour-long sunsets. We had to get used to the fact that the color was not going to disappear in a few minutes. It was there for the duration. It was okay to go have dinner and come back and continue <laughs> photographing the sunset. <laughs> it was okay. completely surreal. But we didn't have a lot of clouds on that trip. Uh, so during the day, you've got these Namibian bald blue skies. You know? We've had another trip where we hardly saw a blue sky. It was just heavy and foggy, and it had an entirely different mood. And Antarctica has so many different moods, so many different lights, and they're so weather-dependent. For me, it's a place of weather. It's a water mm-hmm. place. You know, you think of it as a continent, but you're only seeing two percent of the continent at best. Everything else is buried under ice. It is the largest freshwater body on the planet, but it's frozen. Right? It's ice, but it's a desert. It receives less precipitation than the Sahara. It contains ninety percent of the world's ice. Ninety percent. That means Greenland. Everything in Greenland is eight percent. That means there's one or two percent left for the Himalayas and, and down in the Andes. Right? It just mm-hmm. it's this place of it's it's a staggering place.
1: I've wanted to go, and and two of my fears are that I it would take me years to get beyond the cliche, um, because so many good photographers have been there in the past. And yet, I'm watching your video, and you come around this corner in a boat, and there's that iceberg with all the Roman columns in it. Is is, is it relatively usual to come upon something unique there?
0: Yes, it is. The one you're talking about that looks like Greek architecture, mm-hmm. that, that was an extraordinary gift of that trip. But on another trip, you might get a frozen leviathan or you might get uh, an angel rising up out of the water. You, you have no idea what you're going to get. Uh, and, and that's that's part of the fun of it. And I, f- I feel so grateful that I've been able to go there. But you you hit the head on the nail. How do you... You should hit the nail on the head. <laughs> <laughs> Don't hit your head on the nail.
1: <laughs> well, 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 one is effective for a completely different reason. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Depends
0: on what you're going for, doesn't it? You know? yep. <laughs> it's very easy to fall into the cliche and just quickly survey something that's extraordinary and come over mm-hmm. with pictures that anybody else could make. You just happen to be there. And it's one of the things I encourage people to kind of get away from, particularly in my workshops. Like, we're all there at the same time. If you just got that shot because you got there first, well, is it really yours? What does it take to make the image yours? All right? And I started asking a lot of questions because while 25% of the work in my altered bodies of work w- are straight up, they, they often don't seem that way. They seem surreal. I think Mm -hmm. sometimes photography is inherently surreal. One of the reasons I got into photography is dad could photograph an apple and make it look like a galaxy. (laughs) How does that happen? Right. (laughs) Um, At a certain point, you realize you can't shoot everything, but you want to shoot something that's meaningful to you and you want to shoot it in your way. And in figuring that out, you discover a lot about yourself and uh, you make something that's authentic, not necessarily original or novel, new or different, but something that is really coming out of the fabric of your life and uh, is deeply fulfilling to you. It's it's back to being a kid, you know, when you show you that picture to your mom, like I did. Look, Ma, look what I made. I made this, right? Mm -hmm. But there's a little more investment in there because- you feel deeply connected to this. This is significant to you. And you've taken the time to figure out, you know, out of all of the other things that I could have done. And I did do, I got all the postcards. I got everybody else's shots, you know, the the ones that are communal, but these are the ones that mean the most to me. And I've put it together in a way that expresses something that's really quite unique because I'm unique. So the
1: landscape work can be a self-portrait.
0: Every photograph is a self-portrait to some degree, or it's what a Native American uh, art historian described years ago as a rather aimless cartography.
1: <laughs> oh, I like that. I yeah, like that right. With,
0: with three tri- three trillion photographs made every year, it's pretty much all been surveyed, and so you're <laughs> looking for that magic moment. Okay, let's hope. But how about just the magic? You, you are the moment. You are the event. Right, mm-hmm. and. If you can get more of you into your pictures I, I think you're going to be making things that are so i didn't get to go uh for the last two years covid quarantine oh, yeah are oh, are going yeah and so i've been using that time to really pull together that whole body of work and as i was doing that here i have oh, 360 Straight up images that would go into a book, which hundred would go into that book. And then I'm looking at all the other images in my series and I'm realizing a significant portion of many of the other series are using sources that were shot in Antarctica. I'm thinking, huh. I know they're part of different series, but what if you created a meta-series, a series from different series, and just gathered all the Antarctic? What would that look like? So I needed to prove it to myself. I created a Lightroom collection. I had the images look me in the eye, and I started having a conversation with them. So that's really interesting to see this take on Antarctica side by Mm -hmm. side with the straight stuff. I call the straight stuff My Antarctica Waking and the composited work or the multi-image work uh, My Antarctica Dreaming. Uh, and it's, it's that surreal sensibility, that that sense of metaphor I mentioned in Dad's uh, Apple, but also Jerry eelsman was a huge influence to me as well. I knew him as a as a young man. I've, I've stayed in touch with him over the years. God rest him. He recently passed. with tremendous inspiration for me that uh, you could make images in your mind's eye come into clear focus out in the world for the rest of, of the world, and it's. It's one of the things I think is very challenging to discuss in, in Western culture. We often think, oh, it's just a dream. Oh, it's not worth remembering. That's, it's all in your head, that imaginative fantasy. Yet, you got a guy like Einstein who says imagination is more important than knowledge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a really powerful <laughs> statement from a very wise guy. These images, these experiences we have inside us are equally real to us. And art can be a wonderful way of sharing that with uh, the external world, but also a way of developing it for ourselves. And and so I I pair both sensibilities in this book that I'm working on. I don't know whether it's one book, two books. I've got a book of poetry to go with it. It might be hybrid, including some prose. Uh, It's this chimera that keeps changing on me, and, and I'm having a ball trying to figure it out.
1: That, that's going to be very cool. I, I want to get to your education, and I, or your, your teaching, I should say, uh, and, and to printing in just a second. But as I was going through your work, one of your series, what you call the Correspondence Series, really spoke to me. It, it, it's not you know, absolutely photorealist. It's not surreal. It's, it's this kind of very evocative moment that you've captured uh, many times. Tell me about, pick any one of these images and walk me through it, because- they're all oceanscapes. They've got some clouds. They've got some other things going on. Tell me where this idea and these images came from.
0: they really kind of a visual poetry. The, the idea is going back to that uh, hermetic notion, as above, so below. This mm-hmm. sense of I like that. conversation between the heavens and the earth, or in this case, the ocean. And so... I'm looking for pairs of images, most of those, some of those are straight up, but most of those are pairing one sky with another ocean. And I'm mm-hmm. looking for a kind of a correspondence between the two, as if as if there's some conversation that's happening. And that conversation happens with me, and I'm really glad that it got extended with you as well. I mean, that's, that's Stieglitz's notion of equivalence, and, yep. and Minor White's notion of resonance, it's encouraging to hear that chain of, of communication happening. So really I'm, I'm looking at it as pure poetry or even music. The original working title of that series was Sonata in Blue. Uh, so, cause at the point I, I didn't know what to call yeah. it. You know, this is the early days, nineties. What are you going to say? Uh, sky from Mount Desert, 1991 and seascape from Georgia, 1994. It doesn't make any sense anymore. Right. It's really a study in, in proportion and color and uh, our emotional responses to the conjunctions between the elements in the sky and the ones below the water and and possibly how we respond to it. So, yeah, Stieglitz got into my head. Um, a couple of colorists, Rothko, got into my head mm-hmm. and I'm sorting that kind of thing out. I remember showing some of the work at uh, the Philadelphia Museum years ago, and they were actually w- working with uh, – some research on some new cameras that come in from Edward Muybridge, some of the things he'd been using for his motion things, and, and the curator there was looking at my stuff and saying, you know, your stuff is really cutting edge, but it's also really retro. I said, yeah, I'm also looking at Gustave Legray. Gray. Le Gray did the same thing within the first couple of decades of the invention of photography, pairing one exposure for the sky and another for the foreground. So
1: well, they are each beautiful. And, and um, I keep coming back to this word evocative images uh, for me. And and I love this notion of correspondence. I, I love the balance in all of them. And yet that balance, there's always a little bit of a rough edge in there somewhere. So, right. you know, th- th- they are invitations to sort of try and get in there and figure out what's going on. Yeah. And I'm um,
0: hoping that viewers also get the notion that they can have a correspondence with nature. Oh yeah. And yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, John Paul, you spend a lot of your creative energy as a teacher, both in field workshops and then in non-field workshops. Um, and, and one that caught my eye is the, this notion of printing. And you, you've you got a, a intermediate printing, you've got advanced printing, you've got black and white printing, digital printing. Why Why should a photographer really learn the art of printing?
0: Let me count the ways, but... <laughs> I I could raise up my fingers, but you wouldn't see it because we're talking audio right Mm -hmm. now. (laughs) Uh, When you make a print, you come to understand the images that you're making better. You spend more time with them. You look at them with more care, not just the bigger ones, but also the smaller ones. Images on a phone, you swipe left. They persist a couple of seconds at best. That's if if you've arrested somebody's breath. It might sit there for three seconds maybe, right? But a print sits on a wall, for a long time. And I know that I've had long conversations with my own work and I use my studio and the gallery below to stimulate that conversation, to let it get into my subconscious, my peripheral vision, into the fiber of me. I understand the work better. So there's something not only about the, the durability, but the persistence of a print in an environment. It really It creates an
1: environment. What's the advantage of my learn? I mean, I can finish it up in, in Photoshop or Lightroom and, and, you know, I can send it off to somebody else who's going to produce it the way I see it on my screen on paper. Why Why should I learn that last step?
0: It's never exactly the same. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a myth that what you see is what you get with color management. Things that absorb light look different than things that emit light. But sometimes we make prints because they're on these beautiful, sexy papers they're up at a scale that's much larger than our laptop. Maybe it's even wall size. Uh, The materials and the scale, the finish, putting a frame around your stuff is like getting dressed up and going to a special event. It really is a special event to look at your images. The care and consideration, the time that you put into that will really yield benefits, not only to the single image, but also to your vision as a whole. You'll understand what makes your work more your work, what your preferences are. You'll also understand how to get more out of all of your images in that fine-tuning process. And boy, you know, so many times you think you got it right on screen until you print it. And then you say, oh, (laughs) but I missed that. (laughs) It's a way of extending a little more care to your hero images. And as a result, your work looks stronger, better, more professional. But you get more enjoyment and satisfaction out of the work and out of people's response to your work.
1: I mean, going back to your studies, you know, you've got on the website this whole notion of, you know, abstracting the images, of looking at the colors instead of the content, mm-hmm. of of really sort of dissecting the parts of the image before you get into what that image is actually of. And I can see that same idea coming through in what you're saying about printing here, that yeah. you can't give up the process. It'd be like learning to play saxophone and then never having a concert. You would, you would never get that last understanding, which informs everything backwards. You know, suddenly-
0: <laughs> yeah, and a lot of people curse when they get a new ink set or a new piece of paper. But then I also think that's an opportunity for a new performance. Yeah. <laughs> so here's a funny thing that I, I recently ran into. I just put up a page on my webpage under prints about the benefits of looking at images of nature, mm-hmm. that they actually promote mental and physical health. Not quite, but almost as much as actually being out in nature. Improve sleep, reduce stress, pulse and blood pressure down, inflammation down, immune system boosted. I mean, there's, there's 10 listed on my website there, but I thought it was just fascinating that simply having pictures of nature on your wall promotes better health, both mentally, emotionally, and physically.
1: I, I think that's marvelous for those of us looking at it. But I also, have, I've been the guy out taking pictures of nature going, uh-oh, didn't get that one. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you had the negative ions
0: from the waves crashing, right? You went Ab- through the forest walk.
1: A- absolutely. Um, tell me about your field teaching when you take people, you take people out to the wild. Into the wild.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, not it's not only about spending time, spending time. usually a week, usually sometimes a, week, a little sometimes bit more, more if it's a longer, you know, further destination, maybe international. In a, in a wonderful location. I'm trying to encourage people to ask the questions we've been asking today. How do I connect? How do I make images that are mine? We usually take on this notion of uh, developing a personal project, getting a project started. And we're looking for for 12 keepers that uh, talk to each other in a unique way and suggest where we might be going with our images, uh, making larger statements. And it's um, usually really gratifying to go to a single place have 12 very different individuals often at the same place at the same time come away with such different images. And even if they come away with some of the same images, do different things with them, uh, it's a real testament to the power of of creativity. So I'm I'm trying to stimulate that kind of conversation. At the same time, I'm trying to stimulate a deeper connection with the natural world just because it's so darn wonderful and inspiring and refreshing and I could go on.
1: Yep. I, I, I'm looking now at your Instagram page and I'm thinking about the, these field workshops. I can see the default position. You take somebody out you know, to Maine to take pictures of the fall leaves or whatever, and everyone's going to be doing, you know, bright colors, very photorealist. And yet you've got these really magnificent images of bare branches in color fields, you know, green mm-hmm. or yellow or, or um, I'm going to call it pink and people will tell me I'm wrong. Are, are you trying to teach in the field an imagination that is larger than just what you're seeing immediately?
0: Absolutely. It doesn't mean people have to composite. I'm actually surprised the number of alumni who have been exploring out of focus and uh, in camera motion mm-hmm. uh, treatments of, of subjects. I'm, I'm encouraging people to try stuff. And, you know, I shoot with people as well. I mean, I'm, I'm out in the field. I say, you can always walk and talk with me if you want to hear what's going on in my head. but uh, you can also just kind of glance over at what I'm doing. And I'll share what I'm doing. And those images you're talking about—the silhouettes of branches on bright color fields—came right. on the last day of a workshop, and I was just sitting in the parking lot waiting for everybody to return. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> the branches were head. I like the pattern. I looked like the color on the ground. You know, that we'd had a storm the night before, blew a bunch of the color on the ground. I'm thinking, I wish the color was up there. I said, Well, how could I do that? Photograph the color of the leaves on the ground, put it up in the sky, photographed, and, and something happened there. And I never anticipated doing that kind of work, nor do I know how I'm going to integrate it. It's one of those studies that uh, I returned to earlier this spring with another set, and it was it was very popular on Instagram. Does that mean that I need to pursue it? No, I need to pursue it if I'm really passionate about it. But, but there's something there that I don't really know exactly what's going on. And if I hadn't let myself play, I never would have found it. Right. And if I hadn't practiced just being creative and, and just savored doing that, I mean, it's a wonderful excuse to get up early in the morning, go out to a beautiful place, play and have some fun, see what might happen, something magical might happen. It did. Now you got to figure out what the heck it is. And that's fun, too.
1: I, I love the notion of, I don't really know what's going on. There, there's no stronger call for any art form, frankly, than that notion of of curiosity and exploration.
0: Yeah, yeah. I always loved Robert Frost's, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. Yeah. <laughs> I think that sense of discovery <laughs> translates. And in all the it, conversations I've had with other photographers, that sense of discovery and surprise is something that's kept their work most vital. And it's the images that have been discoveries for them that often become career-defining moments. Yeah.
1: And how does one get into the Photoshop Hall of Fame?
0: Um... <laughs> a second mortgage? No. Okay. <laughs> I'm teasing because of, you know, the early days, you know, the Matt Quadra and the um, drum scanner that was my second mortgage getting started. It's yep. a lot, lot more accessible. You could do it with your phone these days, right? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, early days, there weren't a whole lot of us doing that. And, uh, there really was a wonderful community supporting each other, trying to figure out what this stuff does and trying to work with corporations to, um, help them make better tools so we could all make better images and better prints. Uh, and so I, I became a part of that crew and a really, really wonderful set of friends. And, uh, they made a real contribution to the medium helping along the way. And so, you know, by teaching, by consulting, by having columns in magazines, it, it, let's just say it's, it's been a real pleasure, um, something I've been very grateful to be able to contribute to not just the medium, but the, the people, the community that uh, are passionate about photography.
1: I, and you know, I ask you know, somewhat in jest because so many people, you know, oh, I didn't Photoshop this at all. Well, yeah, you did. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a marvelous tool, and I, I'm jealous as hell of, of people that really can take it, not to the absurd, but to the insightful. Uh, and you, yeah, seem yeah, nice, to, nice. You, you seem to have hit that really nicely on the head. Thank
0: so you. I'm, I'm looking for that. But, you know, I would really love to see a day where we have better language for photography. Are we talking about Man Ray's photograms? Are we talking about Rage Lander's collages? Are we talking about Jerry Olsman's surreal visions with Aiden enlargers? What kind of photography are we talking about? And the same thing is, did you Photoshop that? Really, it's more, what did you do with Photoshop? What was your practice? And how does that help us understand what we're looking at? Because there's nothing wrong with fiction, nothing wrong with the divine comedy, nothing wrong with Paradise Lost. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yep. No, I do.
1: And, and you know, I go back in, in the Victorian days, I forget the name of the image right now, but there's, a, there's an image of a banquet that required 32 negatives. Yes. Um, and I mean that was the beginning of not the beginning, but that that was an early example of huge photo manipulation and everything since then has been a matter of degree, not a matter of kind. So, yeah,
0: well, right, right. And, and so it comes back down to how does the artist practice signal the intent to the viewer? We're not trying to deceive the viewer. We're just trying to make a statement we want to make. And the viewer wants to know, Say, so what is this? Is this fiction? Is it nonfiction? How far did you go? Because that's going to help them understand what they're looking at.
1: John Paul, what are you working on now?
0: Aside from this Antarctica project, um, I'm going back to an older series of work with uh, a lot of wave patterns and water ripples. Uh, I say that, but it's starting to merge into desert dunes, uh, which are also another kind of ripple. So, mm-hmm. working title is uh, interference, but mm. it's going into a larger umbrella: resonance. Back to minor one. Okay. Yep. Asking questions about when we make, when and how we make ripples in the world, and and how uh, everything is is waves out there, including the landscape, including us. You know, down down even at the particle physics level. Yep. Um, the collapse of the wave function. Right. Some of the mysteries of the universe and. Yeah, I mean, you can keep going there, but um, some is very abstract, brightly colored, returning some real rich color. I kind of needed to boost my spirits with color this spring. Okay, it's just been a long two years, hasn't <laughs> <doesn't> it?
1: <laughs> it, it has, it has indeed. You know, and, and we all we all went out and took pictures of empty streets. Now I think you know you're going to find every single one of us at Mardi Gras. But. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, so it, it, it's it's leaning heavily into color, and it's a, a lot of vibration. Of course, color is vibration.
1: Yeah. Very cool. Well, sir, th- this has been a pleasure. Those of you listening, you know you got his work in your hand if you got the magazine. If you don't have the magazine, you should, but you can find it online. Uh, again, John Paul C- or Take a look at it. Thank you very much, sir. This has been an honor and a pleasure.
0: Oh, it's been a real pleasure, Scott. Thank you.
1: Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com